Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would take the words that are presented and make them your words. Burn them into our hearts. Help us to be open and receptive to what you want to say to us. I'm so thankful that uh, you don't leave us in the dark. But the, one of the tasks of the Holy Spirit is to give us understanding. And so we praise you and thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever um, had that, that incident or situation where you were looking at something and you thought, man, this is just perfect, it's really great, and then when you got beyond it and looked at it, it was just rotten? For instance, you know, sometimes you go to the store and you buy avocados, and they feel so great. They're just the right, you know, softness, and you cut into them when you get home and they're rotten inside. Anybody have that experience? Man, you just throw it away, you know, and you think, what a waste of money, you know. Does anybody take those back to the store? I don't, I don't think we're supposed to do that. But, uh, you know, or like on a camping trip, you're gathering firewood and you see this tremendous log. And you think, this would be great, man. We could cut this up and, and burn it. And you go over and you start to pick it up and it just crumbles because it's rotten all over the thing. And so there, there are times when you and I experience things that look great on the outside, but underneath they're rotten. They're, they're, they're rotten through and through. Well, that was the situation in the, in the land of Israel when God sent the prophet Amos to the nation of Israel. Now, again, that's the northern kingdom, those ten tribes of the north that broke off <clears throat> from the tribes of, uh, of Judah and Benjamin. On the surface... They were a very prosperous nation. They were enjoying life and, and they were enjoying a kind of a relatively peaceful existence in that day and time. Um, you know, one of the things that was happening, there was an ongoing struggle for domination in that region. This nation would dominate for a while and then that nation would dominate for a while and so forth. Um, but during that period of time, Israel was pretty calm. It was pretty, pretty peaceful. And so on the outside, they looked really good. In fact, one of the things that characterized uh, the northern kingdom during that 8th century was a, <coughs> an exterior <coughs> of, of religious activity. I mean, there was an external facade of righteousness in that nation. But underneath, there was much in that nation that was displeasing to God. Um, and Amos was sent to deliver God's opinion about the, the spiritual decay of the nation. So let's start with the question, who is Amos? And one of the things that we're going to learn about Amos is that he is not referenced anywhere else in the Old Testament except here in the book that contains his prophecies, the book of Amos. Uh, we know uh, what we know about him is only found in this book. What we do know is that he is one of the 8th century prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel, 8th century being, you know, 700 to, to 799 B.C., that era. He was one of two 8th century prophets who prophesied during um, that, that period of time. There was Amos and there was Hosea. We're going to be looking at Hosea next week uh, as we get through this. Um, so let's look in Amos chapter 1, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you might want to open them there or it'll be here on the screen or you have them in your notes. For those of you who are watching online, it'll be there at the bottom of the screen. So Amos 1, 1. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. So this message was given to Amos, 
a shepherd from the town of Tekoa in Judah. He received this message in visions two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam II, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. Now, notice here there are two mark or three markers, excuse me, that give to us a hint of the date as to when uh, Amos prophesied. First of all, it mentions Uzziah, who was king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Uzziah was on the throne of Judah from about 783 BC to about 742 BC. So that gives us some kind of a rough period of time when Amos was right in the middle of that. Then there was Jeroboam II, king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he reigned from 786 to about 746 B.C. So that gives us a rough area. We can kind of know sort of when he, he, was, he was prophesying. But what will help us to really zero in even more specifically on the period of time that, uh, that Amos prophesied was this earthquake. Uh, it mentions there was an earthquake a couple of years or so uh, before he began prophesying. Well, archaeological evidence has been found in the village of Hazor, which is one of those villages in the northern kingdom, that indicate that there was a, an earthquake, a pretty, pretty severe earthquake, between 765 and 760 B.C. So, from that, we can narrow down to say that Amos probably was prophesying sometime in the early 1760s B.C. Now, as I mentioned, this 8th century period of time was, was a, a time when the various nations in the region were struggling against each other for domination. Who's going to be the, the king of the pile? He was going to be the, you know, the dominating nation. And they would trade off. One would rise up and become powerful, and then uh, they would fade away, and somebody else would rise up and become powerful. Well, during the 8th century, there were two nations that really were, were kind of trying to, to struggle to see who's going to be the dominant, who's going to be the leading nation. One was the Arameans, and the other was the Assyrians. And because they were preoccupied with, them, with each other, and who's going to better the other, and who's going to fight the wars, and who's going to win out and all that, Israel was left in sort of relatively peace. In fact, Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah went through a period of, of great peace. Not only was there peace in the land, but it was a time of great prosperity. Uh, the rich were really rich. And, uh, and so there was, there was uh, lots of prosperity. There was lots of peace in the land. But as you well know, anytime there's peace and prosperity, there can also be complacency, especially complacency toward the things of God. And so this period of peace and prosperity was accompanied. Now, this is what's so ironic. It was accompanied by an increase in religious activity in the northern kingdom. Uh, they were worshiping continually. Uh, you know, the, the worship shrines at Bethel and Dan and Gilgal and, and Beersheba had a constant stream of worshipers who were coming to those shrines and offering a growing number of animal sacrifices in those worship centers. And so the nation gave all the appearance of spirituality. Man, it looked like things were great. They were rich, they were peaceful, they were prosperous, and they were religious. But not always as it appeared, because underneath the surface, the country was rotting. In the book of Amos, 
we're going to see that God will show his disapproval of all the religious activities that the nation of, of Israel was going through. And he's going to announce God's judgment. Amos is going to announce God's judgment on those religious uh, shrines where the people worshiped. And, and he's going to counsel the citizens of Israel, don't go to worship in these places. And he's going to declare that God is going to reject the religious activities of the nation. Now, kind of ironic, this period of great religious fervor. I mean, the people were very religious. Yet underneath, there was moral and spiritual decline, as well as a lot of social upheaval going on in that day and time. So even though they frequently were worshiping at these shrines, it didn't result in moral or spiritual or social uprightness. They were rotten underneath the surface. What we're going to see as we look in this book is the rich got rich by oppressing the poor. I said the rich got richer, the poor got poorer, okay? Uh, the rich were indulging in very extravagant lifestyles, and a part of those lifestyles was a lot of sexual immorality. Uh, they denied justice to those who were oppressed. They, they uh, pushed down those who were downtrodden even further. Um, so the nation gave all the appearance of spirituality, but it was all a facade. It was all a, a smokescreen in, in many ways. Underneath, again, they were rotten through and through. Now, one of the things we learn about Amos is that he was from the village of Tekoa. And Tekoa was a small village in the southern kingdom of Judah. In fact, it was 10 or 11 miles south of Jerusalem. So Amos is a citizen of the southern kingdom. And yet God sends him to the northern kingdom to bring God's message to, to that nation. Now, Amos was not a professional prophet. He didn't have a, you know, a divinity degree. He didn't have an ordination certificate. He was just a layperson. He was a, a raiser, a breeder of sheep, and probably a, a, uh, somebody who grew and tended to uh, sycamore fig trees. And so he was just a layperson, and yet God, through him, uh, was or God used him, as it were, to deliver his message to the northern kingdom. So when we get to the book of Amos, what we're going to find is it divides itself into two parts. There's nine chapters. We're certainly not going to look at all nine chapters this morning, okay? Unless you brought sack lunches. Anybody bring a sack lunch? Nope. Okay. So we won't go all the way there. But the first part, chapters one through six, contains what we might call the words of Amos. What Amos said. And then chapters seven through nine contains the visions of of Amos, what he saw. And uh, in those visions, this last part, I'm just going to summarize for you because we're not going to get to chapter 7 through 9, but he's going to see a vision of God's judgment by a, a locust swarm and then by fire that consumed the land. He's going to see visions of Israel being tested by a plumb line to see if they're, they measure up to God's standard. He's going to see a vision of a basket of ripe fruit that symbolizes that uh, Israel was ripe for punishment from God. And uh, then we're going to see a vision of the Lord God standing at the, at the altar in the temple. And um, 
really proclaiming judgment and his sovereignty over the whole land. And then the book is going to close with a promise of the restoration for the fallen house of David and a promise that never again will these, these people be uprooted from their nation uh, that God has given to them. I want to spend our time this morning, though, looking in chapters 1 through 5 and at some of the selected passages. So let's begin reading there in Amos 1 and verse 2. This is what he, this is Amos, this is what he saw and heard. The Lord roars from his temple on Mount Zion. His voice thunders from Jerusalem. Suddenly, the lush pastures of the shepherds dry up. All the grass on Mount Carmel withers. This verse really sets the theme for the whole book. And in other words, Amos is delivering a, a pronouncement of God's sovereignty and his judgment upon the nation of Israel. It's, it's a judgment that is going to be so destructive that Israel will not survive. Now notice in this verse, he begins to, uh, to address Israel as the covenant people. Uh, he doesn't recognize that they're just a break off from the other two tribes of Israel. No, he recognized them as the whole, as the covenant people of God. You know, the citizens of Israel, the leaders of Israel might have thought of themselves as a separate kingdom from Judah ever since the days of, of Jeroboam I who led that rebellion. But that breaking away didn't cancel the covenant that the people of God had with God. So Amos was calling them to their responsibility as citizens of the kingdom, as covenant partners with him. And so we start with what I call the setup. The setup. And let me explain what I mean by that. Amos begins this section here, beginning in verse 3, with really a tricky literary device that kind of slips in the back door because he's about to pronounce judgment on Israel. But he's going to kind of do it, you know, he's going to slip in from the back door and, and pronounce judgment. So he starts by proclaiming God's judgment against the neighboring nations that were all around Judah. In other words, <clears throat> these judgments of the other nations are going to set the groundwork. They're going to form the introduction to then... Amos leveling the nation of Israel with, with judgment. Now, recognize, of course, that Amos didn't travel to these other nations. There's seven that he's going to talk about here. He didn't, he didn't uh, travel to those nations, but he pronounced ju God's judgment against them. And, and really, this was a setup. Uh, it, it's leading up to his pronouncement of judgment against Israel. One writer called it a rhetoric of entrapment. He, he's about to trap the, the Israelite people in this. So there's seven judgment speeches called oracles. Uh, seven oracles against the neighboring nations that's going to lead to this climax when he then levels the charge against Israel. <clears throat> the the uh, declaration of judgment moves from what we might call foreigners. That would be Aram and Philistia and Phoenicia. And then to three nations that would be blood relatives of of the Israelites. That would be Edom, Ammon, and Moab. All of those three nations descended from the descendants of Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. And then he ends on the sister kingdom of Judah, 
who is the southern kingdom. Now, think about it. Amos's hearers, those who are listening to his to his his uh, proclamation, to his uh, speeches, would have loved those seven oracles against their neighbors. You know, um, and and really until Amos got to the eighth judgment pronunciation against Israel. They wouldn't even realize that they were going to be the subjects of judgment. I mean, here is, is Amos, and he's judging the Philistines. He's judging Ammon. He's judging the Moabites and so forth. And so he's setting the people up for his, he's going to knock the feet out from under them in just a moment. And, and the setup is seen in at least two ways. First of all, by condemning the neighboring nations first, Amos is ensuring that his words of doom will be heard because the people are listening to him. Uh, he's gained the attention of his, of his audience because what's he doing? He's flattering their feelings of superiority and, and, and their natural hatred for these other nations. You know, if you hate somebody and somebody's talking against them, don't you listen up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, you're, you're paying attention because they're, they're being devastated by this, this judgment. But second, it's going to make it harder for the Israelite people who were hearing this message to just dismiss Amos's words as mere raving because uh, they have, have already implicitly approved God's judgment on these neighboring nations. And so they're, they're set up. <clears throat> now, we're not going to look at detail into these uh, seven oracles on the neighboring nations, but they all take a general uh, pattern of five different things. First of all, they begin with an introductory messenger formula that says, this is what the Lord says. All of them begin with, this is what the Lord says. Next comes a statement of the certainty that judgment is coming. For instance, for three sins or even for four sins, I will not turn back my wrath. In other words, God's going to say, I'm certainly going to bring judgment on you. Third thing that happens, then there is a, a specific charge of guilt. This is what you're doing that God is displeased with. And then fourth, there's an announcement of the judgment to come. And for most of them, it talks about, I'm going to send fire. Fire was a common way in which you destroyed the enemy, the, the cities of your enemies. So fire was a very common form of punishment in that day and time. And then fifth, all of them stop with a concluding statement, says the sovereign Lord. Let's look, just to kind of show you how this works at one particular oracle. We're looking, beginning at Amos 1, verse 6. This is the oracle against uh, Philistia. Amos 1, 6. This is what the Lord says. The people of Gaza have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They send whole villages into exile, selling them as slaves to Edom. So I will send down fire on the walls of Gaza, and all its fortresses will be destroyed. I will slaughter the people of Ashdod and destroy the kings of Ashkelon. Then I will turn to attack Ekron, and the few Philistines still left will be killed, says the Sovereign Lord. So these are the Philistines. These are the ancient enemies of Israel. Remember David and fighting Goliath? That's who these people are here, okay? And their sin is that they were selling and deporting whole communities of God's people as slaves to the Edomites. And so God declares <clears throat> that he's going to absolutely annihilate the Philistine nation. Uh, the end of verse 8 there literally says, and the remnant of the Philistines will perish. 
They will be wiped from the face of the earth and the annals of history. So none of the Philistines could, could survive. That's, that's what he's basically saying. And then it ends with that solemn declaration, says the sovereign Lord. What we learn, I think, from this first section of the book of Amos is that Amos's God is so different from the other gods of the nations around them. Most of the other nations had their own God. It was, we might call it their local God or their national God, the one that they worship. But Amos's God here is not limited by nations. He's, he doesn't belong to one nation at all. He doesn't, his power isn't relegated to just some kind of geographical boundary or whatever, or to a special nation. No, he rules and he, and over all the nations. I mean, that was true in Amos's day. And folks, it's true today. God is not the, the sole possession of the United States or, or some other country that, that, that believes in God. No, our God is a God of all nations, a God of all the world. In fact, the theology of Amos allows room only for one God who is supreme in all of life and all of history. So that's one of the things we learn here. Now, after Amos pronounced God's judgment against Israel's neighbors, he then sets his hearers up. They're set up, okay, for this pronouncement of God's judgment on them as well. I mean, up until this point, Amos's hearers have been right with him. I mean, they've rejoiced when they've heard all this judgment that's going on against uh, their neighboring, uh, you know, enemies. Uh, you know, I, I think there's probably cries from the audience of, Amen, preach it on, brother, you know. Uh, they were really excited in that. They were set up for the kill. And so the next thing that happened is that trap snapped shut. Israel's actions really deserved God's judgment. Look at verse 6 there in chapter 2, Amos 2, 6 through 8. <coughs> this is what the Lord says. The people of Israel, now see, he's been talking about all these other nations, and they've been cheering him on. And now he says, the people of Israel have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust and shove the oppressed out of the way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. At the religious festivals, they lounge in clothing their debtors put up as security. In the house of their God, they drink wine bought with unjust fines. So here's Amos, and he levels them by delivering his message of, of judgment. And maybe he's talking to a, a group of Israelites at a specific location. Maybe he's at Bethel at one of the worship centers, and he's delivering God's message to them. And so the, the judgment or this oracle pronouncement really doesn't follow the pattern of the other seven that we've looked at earlier. And so as a result, it probably created some atten uh, attention, excuse me, in the, in the hearts of those who were listening, because it's not quite like what he said about the Moabites and the Philistines and, and so forth. It's a little bit different. <clears throat> and they're coming to understand, oh, we're going to about to be getting, you know, we're going to get it here. He's going to bring pronouncements against us. I think <clears throat> that there's some lessons that the Israelite people needed to learn here. 
Uh, first of all, they needed to learn some lessons concerning the sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign over all and over every nation, and every nation is accountable to God. And second, second lesson, they need to learn something about the tolerance of God. I mean, God tolerates sin to a point. God's tolerance is impartial, you know, all nations alike. But folks, it is limited. That's what they needed to learn. And ultimately, a, a nation's sin is going to reach the point where God's tolerance is going to end and, and His judgment is going to begin. And that's the only outcome that's going to be happening. A third thing that I think they need to learn is concerning the judgment of God, that His judgment is impartial regardless of the nation that's being judged. Uh, God's judgment matches in severity uh, to the sins being judged that's there. So here is Israel's indictment. And, and while it parallels the others, it's a little different because Israel's sins were social in nature. If you look at that, it's playing down, uh, putting down the, the poor, the needy, putting down the downtrodden, uh, and those kinds of things. There's immorality involved in all that. And so their sin could be summed up in oppression of others, those who were down, those who were out. And so in verse 9 through 10, God reminded the people of, of how he had acted to establish the nation from the very beginning. Look at verse 10, and we'll throw in verse 11 as well. God says, it was I who rescued you from Egypt and led you through the deserts for 40 years so you could possess the land of the Amorites. I chose some of your sons to be prophets and others to be Nazarites. Can you deny this, my people of Israel? Ask the Lord. Now notice here, there's a shift from third person where he says, God does this, God does that, to first person. Now it's I am the one who's doing this. And so God's gracious actions on the part of Israel, delivering them out of slavery in Egypt and setting them up in the land of promise and all that, that stands in sharp contrast to the way the Israelites were oppressing the poor. These people of Israel were oppressing the poor. How can they do that when God has been so gracious to them? When they were poor, when they were the downtrodden, and He raised them out of slavery, gave them the land of promise, and now they're doing just what was being done to them. See, Israel's treatment of the poor was destructive. God's treatment of Israel was constructive. And there's a, there's a, there's a contrast here. Now, he mentions two groups here, prophets that he set over Israel to bring God's message to them, spiritual leaders in the way of prophets, but also this group called the Nazarites. <clears throat> and the Nazarites were a special group of leaders in Israel who had dedicated themselves to be completely gods. They, they were devoted to holy living. They didn't drink any uh, fruit from the vine, any wine or anything like that. They tried to maintain a holy, holy lifestyle. And, and look at how the people responded to these spiritual leaders that God had put in place uh, over them. Uh, look there in, in verse 12. He says, but you caused the Nazarites to sin by making them drink wine. And you commanded the prophets, shut up. See, this was a deliberate effort to prevent these spiritual leaders, the prophets and the Nazarites, 
from functioning. I mean, the Nazarites were were forced to break their vows of dedication to the Lord. <clears throat> they, uh, you know, uh, they were abs- they practiced abstinence, and they were not allowed to do that. And then also, the Israelite people commanded the prophets to shut up, to not speak out. So this was an out and out rebellion against the Lord. So look how God responds to that rebellion. Verse thirteen. So I will make you groan like a wagon loaded down with sheaves of grain. Your fastest runners will not get away. The strongest among you will become weak. Every mighty warrior will be unable to save themselves. The archers will not stand their ground. The swiftest runners won't be fast enough to escape. Even those riding horses won't be able to save themselves. On that day, the most courageous of your fighting men will drop their weapons and run for their lives, says the Lord. Well, here is a detailed description of the total devastation of military defeat. I mean, think about it. It's it's a picture of total panic. And the description begins with with a picture of the heavy weight of God's judgment on the people, like a wagon groaning under under a heavy load. Uh, There's going to be total panic among uh, Israel's military when God's judgment comes. He talks about the swift are not going to be swift enough. The strong aren't going to be strong enough. The the warriors will not be able to to fight enough. Uh, The archers will not be able to stand. The fleet-footed soldiers will not be able to escape the battle. Even those on horseback will not escape with their lives. And the bravest warriors will flee naked from the battlefront. It's a scene of total decimation. Notice there in verse 16, he says, on that day. If you remember, excuse me, from our introduction to the minor prophets that we talked about two weeks ago, we talked about a concept that's found, especially in the Old Testament prophets, of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Uh, They identified, the Old Testament prophets identified the day of the Lord as a climactic event when God establishes his sovereignty, when he eradicates all evil, and he brings lasting peace on a universal scale. That's what the day of the Lord is going to be like. Well, Israel had the idea that the day of the Lord would come as a positive event. It would be a great day for them. Amos is going to announce that, no, it's going to be just the opposite. You think it's going to be a great day, I'm going to tell you it's going to be a sad day. And so he announces that it's going to be just the opposite. It'll be a day of judgment against the rebellion of Israel. It'll be a day that will bring defeat and and certainly not deliverance. So in chapter 3, we talk about some consequences that are ahead for Israel because of their their actions, their their false religious system. And, And one of the things you see here is a very unusual scene that takes place. The leaders of Philistia and the leaders of Egypt are symbolically called to sit as witnesses against the wickedness of Israel. Look at verse 9 and 10 of chapter 3. Announce this to the leaders of Philistia and to the great ones of Egypt. Take your seats now on the hills around Samaria and witness the chaos and oppression of Israel. My people have forgotten how to do right, says the Lord. Their fortresses are filled with wealth taken by theft and violence. So Amos is beginning to spell out the crimes that the Lord will punish. Now, the nations of Philistia and Egypt were known, they were experts at violence and oppression. 
Amos is saying, you all sit down. You've got some lessons to learn from Israel. They can teach you more about violence and oppression than you ever even thought. That's, that's the, the thought here. You need to be a witness, and I'm going to teach you what violence and oppression really looks like. And so because of their crimes, God announces there's some consequences that are coming. Look at verse 11. Therefore, says the sovereign Lord, an enemy is coming. He will surround them and shatter their defenses. Then he will plunder all their fortresses. Anytime, in the, especially in the Minor Prophets, you see the word therefore, it's often used to announce God's judgment. He says, you know, Israel, you've done this, this, this. Therefore, here comes God's judgment, okay? <clears throat> and so look uh, then in verse uh, 13. He says, now listen to this. And, and he's speaking there to Philistia and Egypt as witnesses. In other words, what, what's happening here is God is executing his lawsuit against Israel for their violation, for their breaking of the covenant relationship. And he says, now listen to this and announce it throughout all Israel, says the Lord, the, says the Lord, the Lord God of heaven's armies. The, that word Israel there in that verse literally means the house of Jacob. House of Jacob was a term that's used in the Old Testament to talk about the covenant people of God. Uh, you know, Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. So these are the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the house of Jacob. It, it's a title that marked them as the covenant people of God. In verse 14, he says this, On the very day I punish Israel for its sins, I will destroy the pagan altars at Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. That is rendering it impotent. Uh, and I will destroy the beautiful homes of the wealthy, their wintery mansions, their winter mansions, their summer houses too, all their palaces filled with ivory, says the Lord. Now, <clears throat> this part of the message, and you recognize that the book of Amos probably is a collection of a variety of different messages that Amos uh, preached or spoke to the people. And so this part of the message could very well have been delivered in Samaria, which was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. That capital city would have contained the royal palace. The rich would have had their summer homes there. They would have had their winter homes there. Uh, there had been great mansions and so forth. God is saying, I'm going to destroy every bit of it. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Bethel, which, by the way, means the house of God, Bethel was a center of worship in Israel. And, and notice in these verses that he condemns the pagan altars at, at Bethel. And it, he uses the plural there, pagan altars, with an S on the end, which could mean <clears throat> that in Bethel there would be various sites throughout the, the village where there would be altars to pagan gods. Or it could mean there was one site there with a number of altars on that one site. But the sin of the people was rebellion against God. And regardless of how religious they appeared, they were rebelling against God. And what you need to understand is that the worship there at Bethel was kind of a uh, blend of worship of the Lord God of Israel. But then they had added a bunch of pagan elements to it, pagan uh, practices in it. It was kind of a, a blending of paganism and, and, and Judaism altogether. And so this tainted worship really had begun at the very beginning of the northern kingdom. Uh, go back in, in the history of the nation and remember when Jeroboam led those 
10 tribes into rebellion against uh, Rehoboam in the southern kingdom. Um, one of the things that Jeroboam was concerned about, now he was king over these 10 tribes, but he was a little bit worried because the people would have to go back to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple because there was only one temple in, in, in the land of Israel by God's design. And so Jeroboam was a little worried that what's going to happen, all those people are going to be going down to Jerusalem and they're going to become loyal to the southern kingdom and I'm going to lose my kingdom. So what he did, he decided he would build his own worship centers. <clears throat> One in, um, excuse me, at, at Bethel and then another uh, up north in the, in the area of Dan. And he erected some golden calves that were to represent God. Initially, that was his thought. They were going to represent God, these golden calves. Well, over time, God was forgotten and the calves became, became the God that they worshiped. The, the crazy thing is that even though from this time forward they worshiped in Bethel, they worshiped in Dan, the crazy thing is these people thought their worship was right. They thought they were doing it right. And, and as such, think about it. They're breaking the first and foremost commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And, and so they became infidels against God. They, they violated their, their trust, you know, in God. We're worshiping other gods. Well, despite that infidelity, one of the things you see is that God continued to court them seek to draw them back in his mercy and his grace and his love. And so he sent prophets to them, guys like Elijah. He sent Elisha. And then he sent Amos and, and Hosea, all trying to call the people back to God, condemning them for their rebellion and, and seeking to bring them back to God. <clears throat> and see, their worship was wrong because they were ignoring God in their worship. Um, it was contrary to what God wanted in their life. Um, you know, Bethel, think about it. Bethel was the place where Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, had encountered God. Remember with the staircase going up and down to heaven and the angels were descending? Jacob encountered God at Bethel. And now, here is the house of Jacob abandoning God at Bethel. Folks, I think there's a principle here for us that regardless of all the dust that we stir up sometimes in, in worshiping God and serving God, if our hearts are turned to other things, you know, like to the false gods of this world or <clears throat> to the promotion of self and, and our selfish ways, God is going to bring chastening, even on his own people, okay? Because he desires wholehearted loyalty from his people. <clears throat> and, and like the rich in Amos Day, you know, <clears throat> we may find that, that life here on this earth yields temporary material gain and so forth. But if our hearts are not fully committed to God, all is going to be lost in the end. God is not interested in the appearance of righteousness. He's interested in the actuality of righteousness in our lives. And there's a huge difference there. So in chapter 4, he begins with some words of condemnation, condemning them. And uh, in verse 4 through 5, he's going to condemn their worship. Now listen to this. He says, go ahead and offer sacrifices to the idols at Bethel. 
Keep on disobeying at Gilgal. Offer sacrifices each morning and bring your tithes every three days. Present your bread made with yeast as an offering of thanksgiving. Then give your extra voluntary offering so you can brag about it everywhere. This is the kind of thing you Israelites love to do, says the sovereign Lord. Uh, these verses, uh, these two verses kind of form what we might call a priestly call to worship. Uh, you know, a typical call would direct worshipers, you know, come to the shrine to worship God. Come to the shrine and find life. Well, here's Amos. Now catch this. He's inviting his listeners to come to the shrines, but he's inviting them to come and to continue their sin of false worship. I mean, this is kind of a sarcastic parody here to accuse Israel of, of not doing what God desires. You just come on and keep on doing what you're doing is what he's kind of saying because they were doing the opposite of what God desired from them. And he mentions here Gilgal. Gilgal was, was like Bethel, was a popular shrine of, of worship. Uh, think about it. Gilgal was the very first place that Israel camped when they crossed the Jordan River. It was there that <clears throat> Joshua set up, set up the monument to remind them that God had brought them to this place. And so it was a popular site for, for worshiping God. And so Amos says, just keep on worshiping at Gilgal. What he's saying is, sin yet even more. Uh, Amos isn't saying, hey, come do something new. No, he's just saying, continue your sinful worship. Keep doing what you're doing. You see, the ritual itself was not at fault. Um, because they were doing the prescribed things that God had set forth in his law. They were doing the morning sacrifice, the tithes, the bread offerings. But the problem is that the people had made the ritual the end in itself. That was all they needed to do. They had, you know, it was not a means or an expression of their fellowship with God. It was just something they did. And God was, was not a part of it as well. And, and he says, go ahead and brag about all that you're doing. Proclaim, make it known. It really suggests a very prideful and boastful attitude toward their generous offerings and their sacrifices. Uh, you see, their motive, if you think about it, was to magnify their generosity and not their God. Um, they weren't praising God's graciousness to them. They were praising their ability to give. Um, See, Israel loved their religious activity, but they didn't love God. Um, have you ever asked yourself, why do I worship? Why, why am I in this building this morning? Why do I worship? What's our real motive when we come to worship? You see, the problem with Israel, of course, was that really became even greater because on the one hand, they were pretending to be pious and, and to be devout in their worship, while on the other hand, they were pursuing luxuries and riches at the expense of the poor. I mean, not only were they faking their worship, but they were heartlessly treating the poor, the orphans and the widows and the downtrodden in a very terrible way. And then add to that, they were just stubborn. God would call to them, and they were just stubborn. I mean, Amos is going to now condemn uh, Israel's stubbornness in these next verses. I want you to listen to a phrase that repeats throughout here. 
It's the phrase, but still you would not return. And then also the proclamation says the Lord, verse 6 through 13. I brought hunger, and this is God saying, these are the ways I'm chastening you. I brought hunger to every city and famine to every town. But still you would not return to me, says the Lord. I kept the rain from falling when your crops needed it most. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. Rain fell on one field while another field withered away. People staggered from town to town looking for water, but there was never enough. But still, you would not return to me, says the Lord. Verse 9, I struck your farms and vineyards with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured all your figs and olive trees. But still, you would not return to me, says the Lord. I sent plagues on you like the plagues I sent on Egypt long ago. I killed your young men in war and led all your horses away. The stench of death filled the air, but still you would not return to me, says the Lord. I destroyed some of your cities as I destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. <clears throat> Those of you who survived were like charred sticks pulled from a fire, but still you would not return to me, says the Lord. Therefore, I will bring upon you all the disaster I have announced. Prepare to meet your God in judgment, O people of Israel, for the Lord is the one who shaped the mountains, stirred up the winds, and reveals his thoughts to mankind. He turns the light of dawn into darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord God of heaven's army is his name. See, because of their stubbornness, all that they were going to receive from God was going to be disaster and judgment. And so this is a decree from the God who created it all. He, he identifies himself as the Lord of hosts, as the absolute sovereign Lord of all the universe. And then the fifth thing that we find in chapter 5, and goes all the way through 6, is some words of woe. We could almost call chapters 5 through 6 a unit. We could call it the book of woe. If, if chapters 1 through 4 had been the book of doom, well, this is the book of woe. Uh, where Amos is crying over the people and their waywardness. Uh, and yet one of the things that we're going to find here is that Amos is still hoping that the people re will repent and, and turn away this disaster that God is bringing on them. So in chapter 5, verse 4 and 5 and 6, now this is what the Lord says to the families of Israel, come back to me and live. Don't worship at the pagan altars at Bethel. Don't go to the shrines at Gilgal or Beersheba. For the people of Gilgal will be dragged off into exile, and the people of Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Come back to the Lord and live. Otherwise, he will roar through Israel like a fire, devouring you completely. Your gods in Bethel won't be able to quench the, the flames. <clears throat> you see, the cry of, of God through the lips of Amos is simply this. Repent and return. That is, come back and, and live. Now, earlier in this chapter, Amos wept over the thought that maybe Israel's death was final, that it was really all over. And yet, here's one more time he's pleading with them. Uh, these words are his final effort to try to persuade his listeners to repent and to return to the Lord. So in verse 14, do what is good and run from evil so that you may live. Then the Lord God of heaven's armies will be your helper, just as you have claimed. Hate evil and love what is good. Turn your, your courts into true halls of justice. Perhaps even yet the Lord, of God, the Lord God of heaven's armies will have mercy on the remnant of his people. 
You see, if the people are seeking God, there's going to be evidence in their lives. Uh, they're going to begin doing what is right. They're going to be turning from that which is evil. And then in this verse comes this strong offer of hope. When they do turn from evil, God can be counted on to be their helper. Uh, folks, seeking good is a corollary to seeking God. If you're seeking God, good is going to be a part of your life. You see, what Amos is talking about here is what true religion really is. It's not rituals and formulas or offerings and sacrifices. Rather, it is a relationship with God that impacts all of life, including the way we treat other people. You know, James over in the New Testament in his epistle puts it this way. He says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. The idea that Amos is trying to get across is that the one who truly seeks the Lord will also seek the welfare of the poor and the downtrodden. And that wasn't happening in, in Israel. Folks, love for God, I mean a genuine love for the Lord, will always result in a love for other people, especially <clears throat> those that society leaves behind. That has been, folks, this has been the hallmark of Christianity from, for centuries. Christians are the ones who care very deeply for the wounded, for the hurting. Um, Christians established the first hospitals. Christians established the first orphanages. Christians established the first counseling centers, the first sobriety programs, um, <clears throat> the first uh, agencies that address poverty and, and abuse and unwanted pregnancies. Christians have been on the front line of helping people who are wounded and hurting. Christianity has always been about addressing those who've been left behind by society. <clears throat> Folks, it can't be any different today. We've got to make sure that as a church, that we maintain our understanding. That folks, we're just a hospital for the wounded, for people who are hurting, for people who, are, who have fallen. Um, you know, we've got to embrace our role as a hospital for the wounded, as an aid station for the weary, as a, a ray of hope and light for those who are lost in the darkness of our world. It's got to be so. Very quickly, close out chapter 5. <clears throat> I mentioned earlier that um, the Israelites had this wrong idea about the coming day of the Lord. Listen to Amos, verse 18. He says, What sorrow awaits for you who say, Well, if only the day of the Lord were here. You have no idea what you're wishing for. That day will bring darkness, not light. You know, apparently the concept of the day of the Lord was well known in Amos, to Amos' audience. Now, what we're going to find is this is the first reference in the Old Testament to the day of the Lord. Yet it must have been a concept that had been around for a while. Um, um, and so the day of the Lord was sometimes associated with, you know, covenant curses and a holy war and all this kind of thing. And so... The Israelites thought this was going to be a day when God was going to vindicate. He was going to run over the enemies of the nation and they were going to be victorious. Amos is attempting to correct their concept to say, you know, don't have false hopes, folks. Because this is going to be a day of judgment that comes upon you. 
And so he's challenging his readers' assumptions that, you know, okay, we're covenant people, so we're protected from any kind of judgment or thing that's going to happen. It's shown by our prosperity. We're rich, therefore God is, is blessing us. <clears throat> and the, but he wants them to understand that the day of the Lord is really going to be a, not just a day of salvation, but it's going to be a day of judgment. And so he, he announces concerning the day of the Lord that, folks, this is not going to be what you're expecting. It's going to be a day of darkness and not of light. And think about it. Darkness implies defeat and calamity and, and so forth. There's not going to be any victory. There's not going to be any blessings. These people of Israel were pinning false hopes for a bright future on their twisted ideas of worship. They thought that they were protected from God's judgment by their frequent and elaborate worship practices. Amos is saying, man, you're way off base. You're wrong in all that. I think that today, a lot of people pin false hopes on some twisted ideas that we have in our nation, in our society. People who say, well, you know what? I'm not worried about the future because there is no God. And since there's no God, I'm not accountable to anybody, so I can do whatever I want to. That's an assumption some people make. There's no God. Doesn't matter then what I do. There are other people who have this assumption that, well, God loves everybody. <laughs> and he's not going to send anybody to hell. Everybody's just going to make it. It's all love and all that kind of thing. And so they've got this false assumption and it drives their life. And then there are other people who uh, think that well, we're just all going to slide into judgment. If we just do just enough good, more good than we do bad in our life, somehow God's going to wink and he's going to allow us to come into heaven. God's going to honor all the good things we do. People think, man, if I come to church so many times, if I give my money, if I, you know, involved in ministry, all these kind of things, and everything's going to turn out okay. The reality is there's only one way to a relationship with God, and that is through Jesus Christ. And without Jesus Christ, there is no hope. What I want you to know is <clears throat> America, by all accounts, all surveys, all polls that are taken, America is a very religious nation. Now, we know that it's not popular these days to be a Christian. We know that church attendance is declining and declining. And yet America is very religious. We've taken a little bit of Christianity. We've taken a little bit of New Age. We throw in a little Hindu philosophy. We throw in a little Islam. And we've created our own religions. And there are a lot of people out there who call themselves religious, but they're not Christian. <clears throat> the tra truth of the matter is that we're just like the people in Amos Day. We've got all the syncretism, all the practices and so forth. Here's the thing. The nation of Israel was not judged for their lack of religion because they had plenty of that. Man, they were, they were celebrating uh, feasts and assemblies and burnt offerings and all that kind of stuff. Look at verse 21. God says, I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I will not even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Folks, <clears throat> what Amos is telling to us is that worship without the witness of a life of obedience is wasted. You know, religion without a genuine relationship with God is rancid in God's nostrils. 
Songs of praise without a heart of submission to God are simply noise. Uh, folks, our daily behavior can make or break the genuineness of our worship. And so if you go from this place and you live like the devil all week long and, and you treat others with cruelty and meanness, then you've wasted your time this morning. Worship leads to obedience. Worship leads to kindness. Worship leads to concern and caring for other people. Our worship, yes, it's to draw us to God and to give us strength for the week and allow us to focus on the highest priority in, in our world. But it also must resort to us living our lives in a world where we're making it a better world in which we live. Look what God says as he closes out this fifth chapter. Because he's calling for us to live out a better form of worship. <laughs> he says this, instead, instead of all your, your rituals and worship and all that, instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. See, the missing ingredient in their worship was authenticity that manifested itself in a lifestyle of, ob of obedience. Let's not let that be missing as the result of our worship. They had rejected justice and righteousness in the social order. I want our worship to lead us to treat other people fairly and to work for the good of all. Religious activities is no substitute for a personal relationship with God that shows itself in personal righteousness and concern for other people. So let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, you've, you've said in your word that uh, from time to time we need to stop and we need to examine ourselves to see if we're really living the faith. <clears throat> I pray from this study of Amos <clears throat> that we would take time to pause and ask, what about our worship? What is it really leading to? Why do I worship? What's my motive? Do I just go through the motions? Am I here just for a number of different reasons that have nothing to do with you? Or am I allowing my week-to-week -week worship of you to impact the way in which I live each and every day? The psalmist has said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's what I want right now for us. That you would search us, try us, show us, lead us to make sure that our worship is matched by our work in the world. In your name we pray. Amen.